You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Welcome to Season 4 of Bridging the Political Gap with Randall Wallace. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the new Nixon Library. I thank you for being part of this massive crowd. Richard Nixon deserves it. I know all of you will enjoy these new exhibits, which offer a fresh and compelling look into the life and times of our 37th president. President Nixon was a rare statesman who saw and reached far in service to his country. Almighty God, how good it is for us to come together as one as we dedicate this historic museum and library. This magnificent new library, the new exhibits, which tell the story and the totality of the man who was a great president. Let us always be proud to show in our words and actions what we know in our hearts, that we believe in America. No power on earth is stronger than the United States of America today, and none will be stronger than the United States of America in the future. the library is a journey through the history of the second half of the 20th century, the age of Nixon. because I really want this to be correct. Yeah? You said. We are going to interrupt this program for a special bulletin. We will pause for a moment first to let our other stations around the nation join us. I'm Peter Jennings at ABC News headquarters. We have uh, heard just a couple of minutes ago that President Nixon um, may have died, and we emphasize that is a rumor at this point. We say so because President Clinton has decided he's going to come to the White House uh, cameras in a very short period from now and make some statement, and virtually all of our sources say that it has to do with President Nixon. But as soon as we're able to confirm that for you, we will be right back.
States. Richard Milhouse Nixon. His time in office was one of history-making achievement. His departure from office made history as well. Richard Nixon died in New York last night at the age of 81. And our coverage begins with NBC. Good evening. Former President Richard Nixon died tonight here in New York City. Mr. Nixon was 81, and for many of those years, President Nixon rode a political roller coaster from the heights of power to the deepest political disgrace and comeback after comeback. Richard Nixon was just back from his latest political appearance on the world stage, a trip to Moscow, when he fell ill Monday night. He suffered a stroke that left him partially paralyzed and unable to speak. Then, an even more serious complication, swelling of the brain. Mr. Nixon was kept in intensive care, listed in critical condition. He died at the hospital a short while ago. The announcement was made officially just a few seconds ago. CBS News correspondent Anthony Mason is standing by outside New York Hospital with the latest, Anthony. This is a special report from ABC News. Now reporting from New York, Peter Jennings. We're now absolutely able to confirm that President Nixon has died here in New York City. He died at 9.08 p.m., 37th President of the United States, one of the most controversial political figures in the post-war period. He was 81 years old. We have believed for many hours death was imminent. Let's go to New York Hospital. You heard uh, me say in the middle of that that was the short history of what we will forever call one of the most controversial politicians in the post-war period. There is so much uh, to be said about Richard Nixon and all across the country tonight, I must tell you, to various electronic points people are streaming in to reminisce about this man who if you look at the china visit they're paid five visits to china and ten visits to the soviet union one of the first and just back from a trip to moscow was eulogized today both by boris yeltsin and mikhail gorbachev he had a great quality he continued to work up until the last moment. China's leadership warmly praised Nixon. His Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Richard Nixon believed in a strategic design, and he thought the relation with China, Soviet Union, Europe, were all part of an overall uh, pattern. Some of his foreign policy initiatives were considered historic, but a domestic scandal, the Watergate cover-up, led to his resignation. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Charles Colson was one of those convicted in the Watergate affair. I paid a price of going to prison, but Richard Nixon paid a far greater price uh, surrendering the presidency, the most important thing in his life that he'd worked all his life for. His successor, former President Gerald Ford. We have lost a very dear friend in President Nixon, and the United States has lost one of its outstanding uh, leaders in the field of foreign policy. Since Nixon's forced resignation, his tarnished reputation has undergone a slow improvement based on his writings and his continued world travels. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Much of the admiration that you now see for Nixon's intelligence, his speaking skill, his writing skill, comes less from what people saw of him as president than from his 20-year campaign after he left the White House to improve his reputation, and it shows how successful that campaign really was. One of the many ironies of Richard Nixon was that he found a friend in William Clinton. So uh, our relationship continued to... Uh, to be uh, warm and constructive throughout the period of my presidency, and he went out of his way to uh, to give me uh, his best advice. On Wednesday, Mr. Clinton will deliver the eulogy for the man who was the 37th president of the United States and the only one who had to resign. 
Tom Pettit, NBC News, at the White House. As part of our continuing live CBS News coverage on the death of President Nixon, let's bring in our CBS News chief Washington correspondent, Bob Schieffer. Bob, Richard Nixon, President Nixon, a complicated man in a complicated time. Well, he certainly was, Dan, and people loved him, people hated him, some people just found him kind of quirkily amusing, I suppose. But however you felt about him, I think everyone found him fascinating. Certainly he was one of the most fascinating figures of our time, something of a tragic figure, but a tragic figure on a, on a grand scale, almost a Shakespearean scale. You, you have to wonder tonight if perhaps this is not just the way Richard Nixon would have wanted it. It came late on a Friday night after the first edition of the newspaper deadlines had passed after most of the Congress had left town for the weekend. He just sort of went quietly. April 22nd, 1994. He was at one and the same time one of the most admired and one of the most reviled presidents in our history. Just think how much you're going to be missing. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. The Chinese people are a great people. The American people are a great people. As we meet here today, we stand on the threshold of a new era of peace in the world. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Always remember, others may hate you. But those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. Tonight, Richard Nixon is dead. This is ABC News Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Richard Nixon. The name itself is sort of a litmus test. If you're under 30, the name provokes only vague memories of Watergate and perhaps that sad two-armed victory salute from the helicopter that would fly him away from the presidency. If you're over 50, you remember the foreign policy triumphs, opening relations with the People's Republic of China, detente with the Soviet Union. All of this startlingly the work of a man who rose to political prominence as one of America's leading anti-communists. And either way, no matter what your age, the visceral reactions that Richard Nixon's name always provoked those who felt he raised the presidency to great heights, and those who felt he shamed it beyond redemption. As long as he was alive, Richard Nixon evoked those kinds of feelings, but he always insisted that history would vindicate him and mark him as one of America's great presidents. That kind of evaluation begins in earnest tonight because Richard Nixon died this evening at New York Hospital. I'm David Brinkley. This Sunday, President Clinton says he always welcomed Richard Nixon's advice on China, Russia, and other places. With Nixon's death, will his ideas live on? And then so that some of the younger members of our audience who perhaps don't know that much about Richard Nixon have a sense, we're going to go to a piece from my colleague uh, Jeff Greenfield and then come back to you. But first, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think perhaps it's necessary to step back and take a look at the life as a whole. And we've asked my colleague Jeff Greenfield uh, to do a short essay for us on the life of Richard Nixon. Back when television was a first faint flicker, when Milton Berle was the first media celebrity, 
Richard Nixon was already a national political figure. Back when Joe DiMaggio and Jackie Robinson were the giants of baseball, when Bogart and Bacall were the giants of the silver screen, Nixon was already one of the most polarizing politicians in America, a hero of the anti-communist right, a villain of the liberal left. He appeared on the national scene almost half a century ago, when the public schools of the South and of the nation's capital were still racially segregated, when not a single woman sat on the U.S. Supreme Court or in the United States Senate or in a governor's mansion, when barely one in ten mothers of young children worked outside the home. Through all the years and all that has changed, he never left. The public life of Richard Nixon spans nearly a quarter of our country's history. Look at that life, and you can, of course, see a man whose triumphs and disasters no novelist would dare create. But you can also see how intimately Richard Nixon was bound up with our most compelling causes and controversies. To begin with, there was communism, the ideology that defined much of the last half century of our foreign and domestic politics. Richard Nixon was elected to Congress in 1946 by painting his opponent, Jerry Voorhees, as a communist sympathizer. He won his Senate race against Helen Gahagan Douglas four years later the same way. In 1952, he assaulted the Democratic Party as soft on communism. His kitchen confrontation with Soviet Premier Khrushchev at a Moscow trade fair in 1959 became a symbol of Nixon's anti-communism. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. But by the time Nixon had become president, confrontation had given way to a much less ideological view of the now divided communist world. So in 1969, he traveled to Romania, becoming the first American president ever to make a state visit to a communist nation and encouraging Romania's independence from Moscow. Nixon visited mainland China in 1972 and instantly changed the international chessboard by opening relations with a communist nation increasingly at odds with the Soviet Union. Later that year, he went to Moscow to sign the first strategic arms limitation pact with the Soviet Union, an unmistakable sign that this most ardent anti-communist of his time had come to believe some measure of cooperation was critical to the cause of peace. Ironically, only a few months ago, Richard Nixon was in Moscow again, this time roughly the feathers of Boris Yeltsin, the first post-communist leader, when he met with opposition politicians. At age 81, Richard Nixon was still a hard-nosed political realist. And the Russian-American relationship is the most important relationship that the United States has with any nation in the world. You can also follow Richard Nixon's career and track much of television's rise as a political power. We call JFK our first television president. We call Ronald Reagan the great communicator. But in this famous 1952 speech, Richard Nixon became our first TV politician. Charged with financial wrongdoing, urged to quit the GOP ticket, Nixon instead went on national television and talked over the heads of the press and the leaders of his own party directly to the people with his now famous acknowledgement of a gift from a supporter. It was a little cocker spaniel dog a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas, black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Chuck. Sentimental pap, said his opponents, but a million telegrams flooded Republican headquarters, demanding he be kept on as Eisenhower's running mate, much to Ike's amazement. It was the beginning of the modern era of media politics.
It is also now official history that Nixon lost the 1960 presidential race because he was badly lit and badly made up for his first televised debate with John Kennedy. If you want a man with leadership, then Nixon is for you. And two years later, when he lost his bid to become governor of California, Nixon violated a primal law of television. Don't lose your temper in the glare of the media spotlight. You don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But in 1968, a quarter century before Bill Clinton's campaign, Nixon used television to convey the image of a man eager to exchange views with ordinary citizens. You Richard Milhouse Nixon. And in 1968, he won. You can also look at Richard Nixon and see the rise of political protest in America. Protest that both helped him win the presidency and led to its collapse. By 1968, the peaceful civil rights movement had at times turned into something more dangerous. City neighborhoods in flames, guns and troops in the streets. Richard Nixon tapped into the backlash against that violence and disorder. And in so doing, he created a way to reach traditional Democrats in the South and in the suburbs that created an all but impregnable Republican lock on the White House for a quarter of a century. As long as I am president, no band of violent thugs is going to keep me from going out and speaking with the American people whenever they want to hear me and whenever I want to go. But for all he gained politically from his posture as the candidate of law and order, the upheaval surrounding the Vietnam War led eventually to his undoing. Nixon's administration saw the anti-war protests as a threat to the Republic. That view led in 1971 to the biggest mass arrest in American history when thousands of anti-war demonstrators were rounded up and detained in the nation's capital. It was part of Richard Nixon's essential makeup to see enemies everywhere, not just in the streets, but in the Congress, in the halls of the universities and think tanks, and especially in the press. That view led to the creation of a secret White House group, the Plumbers, whose job was to discredit the protesters and to stop the leaks of information to those who opposed the war and to the press. In June of 1972, those plumbers were caught burglarizing Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate complex. And then everything came apart. ABC News presents impeachment. Congress deliberates. Facing certain impeachment and removal from office, Nixon resigned with the most remarkably revealing self-analysis ever delivered by a president. Always remember, others may hate you. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. Richard Nixon left the White House in disgrace because he never really knew himself well enough to resist that impulse against which he warned. He saw enemies everywhere, and in his fever to strike out against them, he dealt himself a mortal political wound. But he knew enough about America for one last triumph. He knew enough to retreat from the spotlight to let time do its work of dimming the roar of old battles, and to reappear in the last decade of his life as a wise and shrewd observer of the world scene. And even though he died in the fullness of his years, it is still something of a shock, given all that he survived, that this remarkable run has finally ended. I'm Jeff Greenfield for Nightline in New York.
This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. year span, I thought we'd go back to the very beginning, to his first race for Congress, where he took on Congressman Jerry Forres, a five-term Democratic congressman from California who served from 1937 to 1947 and was a bit of a, a, a target for Republicans in California because he had been a huge New Deal Democrat uh, of that Franklin Roosevelt variety and one that, you know, had embraced some of the socialism kind of things in the past. But frankly, he had been sort of an unbeatable Democratic congressman. And Nixon, who was straight out off the war, uh, 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 an officer in the Navy, married, uh, you know, just beginning out in life, uh, was a perfect sellable merchandise, I guess, it was one uh, invest, invest, uh, businessman in California who, who recruited Nixon, put it, uh, he was sellable merchandise. He took on Voorhees, and it was a rock'em sock'em campaign that I think Voorhees was caught off guard from every, from all accounts. Um, he'd been there five terms and not really had any uh, successful opponents until, up to that point. And Nixon beat him. All the stocks were full, and, uh, and this Nixon beat me. He was a good debater. He was a clever debater. Uh, I wouldn't deny that at all. Uh, but... Uh, uh, I still feel that the, there were a good many, good many below the belt blows struck in the campaign. Nixon was swept into office with 60% of the vote, part of a nationwide Republican surge. His boyhood goal, to enter politics, had been achieved. That last part was from a documentary on Nixon from PBS, The American Experience. And I, and I included it because I, I think it's a point that very rarely gets made because everybody always wants to accuse Nixon of some kind of, you know, that he ran these awful campaigns. But the truth is Richard Nixon benefited from a surge in Republican uh, vote in that election. If the war was over and Republicans, uh, President Roosevelt was gone and Republicans flourished, and he got 60% of the vote and really a bump momentum that Republicans had going into the election. And so, uh, you know, Voorhees claimed that it was, a lot of stuff was below the belt. 
truth is he, he had not had a race in many years and, and was caught a little bit off guard. And Nixon won. And Nixon ends up making a huge mark right off the bat. And it's actually in an area where leadership was important. And it's a great example of leadership, not of Richard Nixon, though it is really, but of Harry Truman, who was the president of the United States at the time. Nixon was a, uh, at the time, early in his his first six months of his time as a congressman. Uh, but President Truman uh, had to sell a program to it, uh, to bail out Europe after the war. To do it, Truman was willing to take a hard stands, strong stands, make tough decisions, and bring people together to move the country forward. He fostered friendships and led with common sense. But he also was an enormously unpopular president in his own time. History, I think, has treated Truman well. Why? Because he looked at situations with the end in mind, and he was very clear. He knew where he wanted to go. One of the best examples of this was the work to pass the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after the Second World War. Truman's success in convincing a heavily isolationist Republican Congress to pass the Marshall Plan warrants the attention of any future president. His readiness to give the credit to the for his achievement to Marshall and Vandenberg provides support for the aphorisms that you can accomplish a great deal in politics if you give others the credit. Fred Greenstreet wrote of uh, Truman and his strategy to get the plan passed so that Europe could be rebuilt. How did he get it done? Truman realized if it was perceived as his program, the, the opposition would be more willing to defeat it. At the time, our country was no longer in, interested in dealing with the rest of the world's problems, but a destroyed poor Europe was a powder keg waiting to explode. Truman did not want to repeat the mistakes of World War I's aftermath. Starving people are ripe for desperate measures, and that was how Adolf Hitler had come to power in the first place. Truman went to work to bring his opposition in to help rebuild Europe. First, his team came up with how they wanted to go about it, feeding and rebuilding the continent. Then he got together with the Speaker of the House, Joe Martin, and invited him to put together a committee to go see the devastation for themselves. A select committee from both parties was formed, and Congressman Christian Herter was made chairman. The Herter Committee was made up of 19 congressmen. They would travel to Europe and make a report of what they saw. This, then, help, would help the Congress decide if they wanted to support the President and Secretary of State George Marshall's plan. One of the congressmen picked to serve on the Herter Commission was a little-known Californian, and who had already run a poll and discovered that a whopping 75% of the voters were opposed to funding the Marshall Plan. That congressman was Richard Nixon. I learned a great deal from the Herder Committee trip, Nixon later recalled. After what I had seen and learned in Europe, I believed so strongly in the necessity of extending aid that I felt I had no choice but to vote my conscience and then try my hardest to convince my constituents. The Republican Party of the era was very isolationist and had been, and had been out of power from the early 30s. That had changed after the war, and it was now in a position to flex a muscle and do it at Truman's expense. Richard Nixon's district was not alone in its overwhelming opposition to the president's plan. But Nixon wrote about what leadership requires in his book, In the Arena. The essence of leadership is being willing to go against people's uninformed wishes and eventually even bring them along. Nixon studied the situation in Europe, concluded the Marshall Plan was, the national, was in the national interest, and strongly endorsed it. Nixon returned to his district for the better part of a month to defend it. Fred Greenstein wrote in his book, The Presidential Difference. 
Harry Truman knew he needed to make his case that rebuilding Europe was not only the humanitarian thing to do, it was also the smart thing to do, and strategically he would stop communism spread. In order to succeed, he had to sit down and figure out what his objective was and how to get it done. He did it by giving Marshall all the credit and putting him out front and selling the plan, and then he made sure Congress had the opportunity to go see for themselves what had happened in war-torn Europe. He knew they needed to see it and let it tug at their hearts so they would step up and do the right thing. After all, they controlled the purse strings. And then it was men like Richard Nixon who decided it was more important to do the right thing than to do the politically advantageous thing. That is leadership, knowing what you want to do and figuring out how to go about it and doing it in a way that is inclusive of everyone, including those who normally would be on opposing sides. That was Harry Truman's example of leadership, but I can't think of a better one that showed you the kind of leadership you would get from President Nixon down the road than these first tests on the Herder Commission in 1947. You had mentioned the Herder Commission uh, when Richard Nixon was a congressman. One of the first things that he did in 1947 was travel to Europe with uh, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Christian Herder. Um, as vice president, he traveled all over Europe, meeting with world leaders. And even into his wilderness years between 1962 and 1967, um, he, had, he had traveled a lot to Europe. The years before his presidency, those that, that 20 the 25-year period, what unique perspectives do you think he brought to Europe um, by 1969? I, I think the fascinating thing that he brought was his youth. Um, he'd been a member of the House of Representatives since earlier that year, in January of 1947. And, and he, he brought his youth. I mean, to select a member of Congress so young for an important mission like that, I mean, effectively kind of setting up the post-war order economically uh, was was allowing someone to potentially have a great career one day because he, w- he was so young. And so he came back, uh, he went as a junior congressman, and he came back an expert on the issues. And that, that helped him then to, to play even more important roles in U.S.-European relations. And so we had uh, a couple years, the, Mar- the, the Herder Committee led directly into the Marshall Plan aid. And then 1949 was the NATO Treaty establishing the, the Defense Alliance. And so Nixon would play, and by the mid to late 50s, the U.S. was was helping Europe begin its organizations that would become the European Community and then the European European Union. So it it gave Nixon an important early role establishing his foreign policy credentials. Prior to that mission, the only foreign policy credentials he had, although not minuscule, was his wartime service. And so this gave him kind of hands-on political foreign policy experience at a high level. Uh, covered in the New York Times everywhere they went and who they talked to. So this gave a, a very young, uh, upwardly mobile politician some real experience. No sooner was Nixon back from the Herder Commission in Turing Europe and then dealing with uh, getting it sold to his own district that he got placed on a committee called the House on Un-American Activities a, a Committee. And there he stumbled on a case that made him instantly a national figure. It was the case of the spy, Alger Hiss, who had been an aide to Franklin Roosevelt at Yalta, but had been a suspected spy for many, many years uh, prior to Nixon even looking into it. And it really is the basis for a lot of the really super negative things that you hear about President Nixon. There's kind of this old story that, uh, that I used to, that the guy that runs Market America, the company my mother worked with, used to say about Grandma's ham. 
about uh, about the newlywed couple who gets married and they they uh, they keep cutting the end of the ham off and putting it in the oven. And the husband finally asks, he says, well, my mom did it that way. So he goes and asks the mother, and she says, well, my mother did it that way. So they go ask that mother, and she says, well, my mother did it that way. So they go see great-great-grandma. She says, well, I had a wood stove, and the ham was too big for the stove. So I always had to cut it off. You know, people don't really know this story about Alger Hiss. And and so they just go with this liberal mindset about how terrible Nixon was. But you're going to get some insight down the road about here just a few minutes about Alger Hiss, uh, but literally through this entire exchange, no one could out and out prove anything other than Hiss committed perjury uh, throughout this whole debate as it went through, and it left a lingering bitterness toward Richard Nixon for years and years afterwards that because his career was so long, the next generation of Nixon haters that were out there didn't really know what this was about. I am holding in my hand a microfilm, a very highly confidential secret State Department document. These documents were fed out of the State Department over 10 years ago by communists who were employees of that department and who were interested in seeing if these documents were sent to the Soviet Union, where the interests of the Soviet Union happened to be in conflict with those of the United States. Commenting on Mr. Munt so-called summation. I would like to point out that the man who calls himself Chambers has, by his own testimony, been peddling to various government agencies for 10 years or so stories about me. I urge in advance of that hearing that your committee delay no longer in penetrating to the bedrock of the facts relevant to the charge which you have publicized that I am or have been a communist. I don't hate Mr. Hiss. We were close friends. We are caught in the tragedy of history. Mr. Hiss represents the concealed enemy against which we are all fighting and I am fighting. I testified against him with remorse and pity. That was Nixon as a congressman. Alger Hiss himself, and then Whitaker Chambers, who was his chief accuser, and this was all about uh, Whitaker Chambers, who was a confessed spy who had been a reporter, or not a spy, but a communist who had been a reporter and an editor for Time magazine, and his claim to having a relationship to Alger Hiss, and Hiss denied it, and so you had this whole case that, that, that brewed from it, and Nixon kept on and on and on when everybody else was willing to drop it, and it made his career, but as I said, for years, people believed Alger Hiss was innocent and that Nixon had, had destroyed him for no reason. And that is the source of a lot of the bitterness and hate toward Nixon that went on and on and on for years uh, afterwards. But Christina Shelton wrote a book uh, about Alger Hiss that basically proves that he's guilty. And you're going to see that 
a lot of people now realize this that came about after 1996 and the KGB files opened and the Verona papers came out that Alger Hiss had actually been guilty. You started out your introduction in the book by asking, why do we need another book about Hiss? So, and he has been extensively written about. Uh, so what's, what's your answer to that? What, why, why do we need this book? Why did you write this book? Well, I wrote the book because I've always been interested in the subject, counterintelligence, espionage, and of course, this is one of the most famous cases, if not the most after the Rosenbergs. And it's, it's just a fascinating saga because you're dealing with two men who are on opposing sides with different worldviews, interesting people, brilliant people. The story is fascinating just in and by itself. Then I started thinking, you know, most of the books on his, there have been a lot written, do I want to write a book? Most of them focus on the case. Who is telling the truth during the trials and during the commercial years? I thought it was much more than that. I saw it as a, a very a strategic view and perspective. What mattered was ideology. That's what his was about. That's what drove his thinking. That's what drove his behavior. These two opposing worldviews between collectivism and individualism are so clearly uh, seen in the struggle between these two men. This is almost a titanic struggle between the two. So I thought it was important to put the story in the context of ideology. I also thought it was important to tell more about his significant role in foreign policy, especially at Yalta and the founding of the UN. And as I said just now, having the, um, his personal papers from the NYU archives, which showed a very humanistic style, a style, side of his, his sweetness almost, as Whitaker Chambers acknowledged, he was a very sweet man. His concern and love for his wife, and especially Tony, his son, all of this comes through in his correspondence. You see this very human side of the man, which didn't necessarily come through in other books. And finally, most importantly, the KGB archives and Hungarian archives were available to, to pretty much put the nail, final nail in the coffin. I mean, especially the KGB archives where his is cited not only by his crypt and covenant, but in clear text, Alger Hiss, in the archives. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Christina Sheldon for a fascinating things that uh, it, it, it is always interesting. We keep coming back to Nixon's hatred. And if you read the final days about his last uh, year in office that we wrote, you'll find that it's a very empathic book. It's a human story on many levels and about what Nixon is suffering as this is all closing in on him. And when I hear the tapes, it's just a little historic asterisk. I'm always hearing Nixon go back to his, to Alger Hiss and his case. Those goddamn Jews, those goddamn liberals, they've hated me since the his case. And what Nixon knew that most of the rest of us didn't was that he was right about his, that his was a spy. We know it now from Venona, from the cryptography and all kinds of other things. But he, his, he felt maligned now. This is not to excuse anything, but it's just an interesting thing. Comes up, 
How many times do you talk about his? Talks about his all the time, and he thought, talks about it in the context that, that you're mentioning. He thought that his case confirmed what he thought about Jews and intellectuals and Ivy Leaguers <laughs> and, and leftists. His wasn't Jewish. No, but his wasn't Jewish, but some of his. He was establishment. He was worse. <laughs> <laughs> and Nixon yeah, thought that Nick, Nixon said his might have been half a Jew. Just for those of you who don't know who that was, that is Carl Bernstein, who is the one of the famous duo of, of uh, Woodward and Bernstein of the Watergate fame from the Washington Post. And I included that because, and, and it's very unfortunate that Ken Hughes, who is a historian for the Miller Center, included this anti-Semitic stuff about Jewish people um, in the middle of that, because what you're listening to is the only admission that I have seen from any of these reporters or whatever from Watergate that they were wrong and that's kind of this background that comes up as you get into the Nixon presidency where he comes in and he's got so many enemies out to get him. Richard Reeves, a historian who wrote a book about him, talks about that. He really did have people out there who thought it was their duty to destroy Richard Nixon and it goes back to Alger Hiss and this case and Nixon knew that other people did not know is that Hiss was guilty and that and that was coming and unfortunately none of that was known until 1996 when the KGB archives opened and so many of these other papers came out and Hiss was named by name that happened in 1996 by then both Richard Nixon and Alger Hiss were dead and gone but Nixon having fought this battle against the communist it would set him up for the next race in his life where he made national news, and that was his race against a former movie, Hollywood movie star named Helen Cahagan Douglas. And, you know, there's been a lot of stuff said about that race that is unfair to President, to then Congressman Nixon about it being, about how he tried to destroy her and mudsling against her uh, by accusing her of being the pink lady. But very rarely do you hear that she called him Tricky Dick and stuck him with that monitor for the rest of his life. Or, or the, the attack and smear campaigns that she ran against him. But Nixon really kind of stayed in one theme, and that is that she was sympathetic to communism. And I found an interesting interview with Mrs. Douglas, and I'm going to let you listen to, and you tell me what you come away with. In 1950, of course, you having three terms in Congress, you did run for the, for the Senate. Yes, on a campaign that has been described as the first of the dirty tricks campaign. Well, it really wasn't, because the first was against Jerry Boris when uh, when uh, Richard Nixon ran for the House of Representatives and unseated Jerry Boris. It was the same kind of campaign as he waged against me in 1950. But uh, um, I, again, didn't want to go to the Senate. But I was so distressed that Sheridan Downey, who was our Democratic senator, was doing to the Interior Department what Joe McCarthy did afterwards to the State Department, that um, I determined he had, to, he had to be defeated, and we had to defeat him. In any event, the, the, the point here is that um, you ended up running against the Republican nominee. No, he ran against me, because we had had the seat. I mean, that's why I say it. I'm not saying it to be facetious. But uh, uh, we had the seat. It, a Democrat had sat in that seat for 12 years, for two terms, you see. That was Downey. And I challenged Downey, and I won the primary. Right. Then they had to find a Republican 
who would defeat me? Right. And they chose, the Republicans chose uh, uh, Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. well, and he was already in the House of Representatives. Right. But he hadn't been there as long as I had. And it was the campaign that, in, if not invented, certainly was a major contributor to the dirty tricks. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They started with the essence of that kind of campaign is this. To avoid the issues, you work up bogus issues. Mm -hmm. Trying to play on the fears of people. Because if you talk about the real issues, you may lose votes. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. That's an eloquent definition. Um, I want to ask you, because it's a terribly important part of this whole uh, problem that you dealt with, because the implication, of course, was that you were a communist or a communist sympathizer. Yes, they, 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 they tried to create that impression what, in the campaign. What, what do you feel about communism, per se? I think they've done some good things. But uh, I don't think there's anything, anything uh, that is comparable to democracy, certainly for us. I don't know if you can have democracy in a country where people aren't literate. I don't know. Um, um, but uh, I was brought up uh, believing that this was the only system, and I, and, I, and I still think of it as the system. I think it, it, uh, in, in, uh, that it is, it, is good, it, it is as good as we make it. That's a key phrase. It is as good as we make it. But the machinery is all there. And the machinery is not there in a totalitarian government. And communism is a totalitarian government. They have an elite in Russia. Uh, um, and you, 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 well, we know the story from Russia. There's no sense repeating that. Everybody knows it. And uh, uh, that no matter what, the challenge is this for us and has been from the beginning with communism. Or if, if, if Hitler had, had prevailed in Europe, would have been the same thing. What, what, uh, except I don't think it's fair to say that Nazism and communism are just the same, because no. I don't. I think Nazism is worse. But you were making By far worse. But if, if they had, uh, uh, the challenge from the beginning has been this. Can we, in a free country, in a democratic government, provide freedom and bread. All right. They provide bread in communist country, or claim they provide. And they have done quite a remarkable job in all those countries in providing bread, although it hasn't been 100% perfect. But they have pulled up whole masses of people who were suffering before. Certainly that's true in China today. Extraordinary in China what has happened, I think. Uh, uh, but that has been the challenge all the way through for us. I think when Khrushchev said, I'll bury you, that that's what he meant. He wasn't talking about bombs. I never thought he was talking about bombs. But he was talking about, we will bury you economically. We'll pass you economically. And therefore, then there'll be no competition because you won't be able to, to, to do for your people what we can do for ours. Well, I said, we still have to meet that challenge, I think. I think that's where we are. <laughs> now, folks, anybody who listens to that interview realizes it ain't a stretch to say that lady was the pink lady or, or that she might be sympathetic to communism. I don't think he was going anywhere near below the belt to make that point to anybody. And obviously, the, the voters agreed. And not only did they agree, 
Jack Kennedy showed up with a check from his daddy for Richard Nixon in that race and actually said, let Washington's loss be Hollywood's gain. That should tell you everything you need to know about what really happened in the race between Richard Nixon and Helen Cahagan Douglas for the U.S. Senate. A lot of people probably wonder how it is possible for a candidate to be elected into any office in California when he is a member of the Republican Party. I have just had that experience, and I should like to point out the reason for our, our election victory. It's because in this particular election, the issues, rather than the partisan labels of the candidates, were what governed the electorate. Nixon didn't last very long in the United States Senate because the opportunity of a lifetime was handed to him at 39 years of age. General Eisenhower picked him to be his running mate in 1952 for the presidential ticket. And, uh, and so they take off running against Adlai Stevenson and a Senator Sparkman from Alabama. When a scandal breaks out against President or against then Senator Nixon about a f secret fund that he had been using to, to finance uh, personal expense or political expenses, uh, you know, like travel and all that kind of thing. The ironic part of this is that Adlai Stevenson had one just like it, but nobody brought that up when they were bashing him about this secret fund. But that led to one of the great speeches in American history, and the first time television got used uh, in a political campaign on any grand scale, uh, and that was the checker speech, where Senator Nixon asked for time and laid out his entire financial picture for the entire nation to hear. The program is sponsored by the Republican National Committee, the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, and the Republican Congressional Committee. You are about to hear a report from Senator Richard Nixon, nominee for the office of Vice President of the United States. The Senator has interrupted his nationwide campaign tour to be with you tonight for this important message. Ladies and gentlemen, Senator Richard Nixon. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the Vice Presidency and as a man whose honesty and, and integrity has been questioned. Now, the usual political thing to do when charges are made against you is to either ignore them or to deny them without giving details. I believe we've had enough of that in the United States, particularly with the present administration in Washington, D.C. To me, the office of the Vice Presidency of the United States is a great office. And I feel that the people have got to have confidence in the integrity of the men who run for that office and who might obtain it. I have a theory, too, that the best and only answer to a smear or to an honest misunderstanding of the facts is to tell the truth. And that's why I'm here tonight. I want to tell you my side of the case. Now, was that wrong? The question is, was it morally wrong? I say that it was morally wrong if any of that $18,000 went to Senator Nixon for my personal use. I say that it was morally wrong if it was secretly given and secretly handled. And I say that it was morally wrong if any of the contributors got special favors for the contributions that they made. It was not a secret fund. As a matter of fact, when I was on Meet the Press, some of you may have seen it last Sunday, Peter Edson came up to me after the program and he said, Dick, what about this fund we hear about? And I said, well, there's no secret about it. Go out and see Dana Smith, who was the administrator of the fund. And I gave him his address. And I said, you will find that the purpose of the fund simply 
was to defray political expenses that I did not feel should be charged to the government. And third, let me point out, and I want to make this particularly clear, that no contributor to this fund, no contributor to any of my campaigns, has ever received any consideration that he would not have received as an ordinary constituent. Then in 1942, I went into the service. Let me say that my service record was not a particularly unusual one. I went to the South Pacific. I guess I'm entitled to a couple of battle stars. I got a couple of letters of commendation, but I was just there when the bombs were falling. And then I returned. Returned to the United States, and in 1946, I ran for the Congress. When we came out of the war, Pat and I, Pat, during the war, had worked as a stenographer and in a bank and as an economist for a government agency. And when we came out, the total of our savings from both my law practice, her teaching, and all the time that I was in the war, the total for that entire period was just a little less than $10,000. Every cent of that, incidentally, was in government bonds. Well, that's where we start when I go into politics. Now, what have I earned since I went into politics? Well, here it is. I've jotted it down. Let me read the notes. First of all, I've had my salary as a congressman and as a senator. Second, I have received a total in this past six years of $1,600 from estates which were in my law firm at the time that I severed my connection with it. And incidentally, as I said before, I have not engaged in any legal practice and have not accepted any fees from business that came into the firm after I went into politics. I have made an average of approximately $1,500 a year from non-political speaking engagements and lectures. And then fortunately, we've inherited a little money. Pat sold her interest in her father's estate for $3,000, and I inherited $1,500 from my grandfather. We lived rather modestly. For four years, we lived in an apartment in Park Fairfax in Alexandria, Virginia. The rent was $80 a month. And we saved for the time that we could buy a house. Now, this will surprise you because it is so little, I suppose, as standards generally go of people in public life. First of all, we've got a house in Washington which cost $41,000 and in which we owe $20,000. We have a house in Whittier, California, which cost $13,000, and on which we owe $3,000. My folks are living there at the present time. I have just $4,000 in life insurance, plus my GI policy, which I've never been able to convert, and which will run out in two years. I have no life insurance whatever on Pat. I have no life insurance on our two youngsters. And I own a 1950 Oldsmobile car. We have our furniture. We have no stocks and bonds of any type. We have no interest of any kind, direct or indirect, in any business. Now, that's what we have. What do we owe? Well, in addition to the mortgage, the $20,000 mortgage on the house in Washington, the $10,000 one on the house in Whittier, I owe $4,500 to the Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C., with interest of 
I owe $3,500 to my parents. And the interest on that loan, which I pay regularly, because it's the part of the savings they made through the years they were working so hard, I pay regularly 4%. And then I have a $500 loan, which I have on my life. That's what we have. It isn't very much. But Pat and I have the satisfaction that every dime that we've got is honestly ours. I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat. But she does have a respectable Republican cloth coat. And I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about you too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checker. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. It isn't easy to come before a nationwide audience and bear your life as I've done. But I want to say some things before I conclude. First of all, you have read in the papers about other funds now. Mr. Stevenson apparently had a couple. One of them in which a group of business people paid and helped to supplement the salaries of state employees. Here is where the money went directly into their pockets. And I think that what Mr. Stevenson should do should be to come before the American people as I have. Give the names of the people that contributed to that fund. Give the names of the people who put this money into their pockets at the same time that they were receiving money from their state government. And see what favors, if any, they gave out for that. I don't condemn Mr. Stevenson for what he did, but until the facts are in, there is a doubt. Why do I feel so deeply? Why do I feel that in spite of the smears, the misunderstanding, the necessity for a man to come up here and bear his soul as I have, why is it necessary for me to continue this fight? And I want to tell you why. Because, you see, I love my country. And I think my country is in danger. And I think the only man that can save America at this time is the man that's running for president on my ticket, Dwight Eisenhower. You say, why do I think it's in danger? And I say, look at the record. Seven years of the Truman-Atchison administration and what's happened. 600 million people lost to the communists. And a war in Korea in which we have lost 117,000 American casualties. And I say to all of you that a policy that results in the loss of 600 million people to the communists and a war which cost us 117,000 American casualties isn't good enough for America. And I say that those in the State Department that made the mistakes which caused that war and which resulted in those losses should be kicked out of the State Department just as fast as we get them out of it. And let me say that I know Mr. Stevenson won't do that, 
because he defends the Truman policy. And I know that Dwight Eisenhower will do that and that he will give America the leadership that it Let me say this. I don't believe that I ought to quit because I'm not a quitter. And incidentally, Pat's not a quitter. After all, her name was Patricia Ryan and she was born on St. Patrick's Day. And you know, the Irish never quit. But the decision, my friends, is not mine. I would do nothing that would harm the possibilities of Dwight Eisenhower to become president of the United States. And for that reason, I am submitting to the Republican National Committee tonight through this television broadcast the decision which it is theirs to make. Let them decide whether my position on the ticket will help or hurt. And I'm going to ask you to help them decide. Wire and write the Republican National Committee whether you think I should stay on or whether I should get off. Just let me say this last word. Regardless of what happens, I'm going to continue this fight. I'm going to campaign up and down in America until we drive the crooks and the communists and those that defend them out of Washington. And remember, folks, Eisenhower is a great man. Obviously, it worked. And Richard Nixon stayed on the ticket. And in November, they swamped Stevenson Sparkman. Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. The big election night, 1952, the year when the United States picks its 35th president. Balmy weather over most of the United States today and a record turnout apparently throughout the United States. We're going to be giving you all of the figures just as quickly as we can, the national totals, and then by states we'll cover the, the congressional uh, races, of course, of which there are many, 35 Senate races, and of course all of the House seats, 435. It takes some 266 electoral votes to win the presidency, you know. Electoral votes, the majority vote from each of the uh, states. Uh, fix the electoral slate from that state, then they are cast uh, on next December. But we'll know the result sometime tonight or early in the morning. Let's take a look now at the popular vote in the United States at this particular moment. For Governor Stevenson, the Democratic candidate from Illinois, 265,000 votes. For General Eisenhower, 282,000. In the electoral vote, 266 votes needed to win. Governor Stevenson is leading in eight states with a total of 96 electoral votes. General Eisenhower is leading in 15 states with a total of 144 electoral votes. And now for uh, perhaps a prediction on how this voting is going, what the vote uh, that is in so far means. Let's turn to that miracle of the modern age, the electronic brain Univac and uh, Charles Collingwood. Breaking off from our election headquarters, General Eisenhower has just arrived there. Over to the Commodore Hotel. I was particularly anxious uh, to get to see you this evening uh, before the final returns were in because I wanted to tell you that the outcome of this election has nothing whatsoever to do with the deep feeling of gratitude that I have for every single American who has felt in his heart that I might be of service to our country in its highest office. Now, 
And uh, that's the prediction from UNIVAC, the electronic brain. Let's see what the actual totals are at the moment. The popular vote, General Eisenhower leads with 4,841,000. Uh, Governor Stevenson has 4,343,000. General Eisenhower leads now in 29 states with a total of 300 electoral votes. Governor Stevenson leads in 14 states with a total of 177 electoral votes. Uh, we've had uh, some report from every state now, it appears, even though very scattered from uh, some. And a bulletin in New York, Democratic State Chairman Paul Fitzpatrick has conceded that General Dwight D. Eisenhower would carry New York State with its 45 electoral votes. The biggest package of electoral votes in the nation have been conceded to the Republicans by the Democratic State Chairman Paul Fitzpatrick. Counting the break of the uh, Republicans into the South, Virginia is already in their pocket. Florida is leaning very heavily Republican at the moment. The vote in Texas indicates there may be a Republican victory there. With uh, New York, uh, another large state would virtually assure victory for the Republicans. Bulletin from Springfield, Illinois. One of Governor Adley Stevenson's aides has just told newsmen outside the governor's mansion it's all over now but the concession to General Eisenhower. The advisor said that there was no doubt that Eisenhower had won. There wasn't much use, he felt, of hanging on to the outside possibility that Stevenson still had a chance for enough electoral votes to win. There's the governor's mansion. Out in Springfield, can we shift out there? There's the scene. Governor Stevenson, we understand, has just left the mansion. Here is, here is Stevenson uh, coming in to the Leland Hotel headquarters, his election headquarters in Springfield, Illinois. Here he comes, ladies and gentlemen. Governor Stevenson has entered the hall. He is facing me now. He is getting up on the platform. He is stopping to talk to some of the correspondents. He's dressed in a dark blue suit and a red tie. There's a big smile on his face, and he's just winked at one of the reporters. He's taking his speech out of his pocket. There's a large, as you can obviously see and hear, there's a large round of applause. His lips are pressed together. He is looking now over at the organist who is making the noise. My fellow citizens have made their choice and have selected General Eisenhower and the Republican Party as the instruments of their will for the next four years. The people have rendered their verdict and I gladly accept it. General Eisenhower has been a great leader in war. He has been a vigorous and valiant opponent in the campaign. These qualities will now be dedicated to leading us all through the next four years. It is, it is traditionally American to fight hard before an election. It is equally traditional to close ranks as soon as the people have spoken. From the depths of my heart, I thank all of my party and all of those independents and republicans who supported Senator Sparkman and me. That which unites us as American citizens is far greater than that which divides us as political parties. I urge you all to give 
I urge you all to give to General Eisenhower the support he will need to carry out the great tasks that lie before him. I pledge you mine. We vote as many, but we pray as one. With a united people, with faith in democracy, with common concern for others less fortunate around the globe, we shall move forward with God's guidance toward the time when his children shall grow in freedom and dignity in a world at peace. There's General Eisenhower as he comes into the ballroom. The cheers go up from his supporters. He has a Secret Service guard uh, for the first time as he steps up to the platform. And in a moment, we'll be hearing from him. Down to the Commodore Hotel ballroom, the microphone. I am not certain, my friends, whether or not uh, you have read or heard the telegram that Mr. Stevenson just sent to me. It reads, The people have made their choice, and I congratulate you, that you may be the servant and guardian of peace, and make the day of trouble a door of hope, is my earnest prayer. Best wishes, Adley Stevenson. Just as I came down to the ballroom, I replied to that telegram as follows. I thank you for your courteous and generous message, recognizing the intensity of the difficulties that lie ahead. It is clearly necessary that men and women of goodwill of both parties forget the political strife through which we have passed and devote themselves to the single purpose of a better future. This, I believe, they will do. Sound signed with my name. Now, my friends, it is trite to say that this is a day of dedication rather than of triumph. But I am indeed as humble as I am proud uh, by the, of the decision. Uh, that the American people have made. And I recognize clearly the weight of the responsibilities uh, you have placed upon me, and I assure you that I shall never, in my service in Washington, give short weight uh, to those responsibilities. Ed Murrow and Eric Severide are here with us now for a summing up also how this... Uh, matter is gone, what we can look forward to in the future. Ed, how does it look to you? Walter, it seems to me that this was the end of an era in American politics, a great exclamation point in our national history. Because tonight, after 20 long years, the traditional concessions of defeat came not from Republicans, but from Democrats. And for those millions of Americans who have voted and worked and hoped for a change, tonight they have got it. They have assured the return to the White House of a Republican president. It was a great moment of triumph for them, of vindication. The tangible proof that now, after two decades, through the use of the ballot box, the American people have finally agreed with them
that it was time for a change. Millions of people in their homes, in their living rooms, perhaps living rooms that they bought and paid for during a democratic administration, you have heard a gallant winner and a gallant loser. It was universally said in Chicago after the conventions that both parties had chosen men who were worthy of the nation. One has been chosen, General Eisenhower. To me, the most impressive thing about tonight is again the demonstration that the people of this country are sovereign, that they are unpredictable, and that somehow in a fashion that is as mysterious to pollsters as it is to reporters, the great normal majority in this country made up its mind as to the man it wanted to lead it. Eric Savaride, what's uh, your summing up? Well, Walter, after those eloquent words of ads that we've just listened to, um, there isn't a great deal that I really feel much like saying. I, um, I think that it's been rare in American history that one individual has had such an overwhelming endorsement and vote of confidence in the American people, of, obviously of all classes, and of all sections, of all creeds. I think this places upon him personally a magnified degree of responsibility in the presidency, such as few presidents have exercised. I hope that uh, he understands in his deepest recesses of his mind that the presidency in this system of ours is something that is as strong or as weak as the man who occupies the White House wants to make it. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now. <laughs>